You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Let's turn to page 841 in the Bibles that are in front of you if you didn't bring one. If you did bring your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 6 as we continue our study. And I want to read a passage that if you've been in the church for a while or you've studied the Gospels or are familiar with the story of Jesus, you are likely familiar with this passage. It unpacks a miracle that is the only miracle that all four Gospels include, and I pray that it will be encouraging to you, enlightening, and that your learning will transform into living. As I read this passage, I want to invite you to see where the point is that Mark has for including these details. Because when I preach, I'm not just unpacking my study from the week. I'm not just trying to give you resources that will allow you to apply them in your life. I'm also wanting to model how to study God's Word. So let's read this together. See if you can find the point that Mark has for this passage in this initial reading. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 30. The apostles, these are the 12 disciples, returned to Jesus And told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore... He saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups in the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces of fish. And those who ate the loaves were about five thousand men. Now as I read that, maybe your eyes were drawn to five loaves, two fish, five thousand. Maybe your eyes were drawn to what appears to be a pretty sharp response by Jesus, you give them something to eat. Maybe your eyes were drawn to the beginning of this passage where Jesus called his disciples to follow him to a desolate place to rest for a while. And all of those attributes and details of the story are important, but I think the point of Mark's inclusion is in verse 34. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, even when I say that, you bring your own expectations, your own background, your own definitions to 
the shepherd sheep analogy, but I, what I want to do this morning is unpack it the way that Mark intended to further educate us on who the shepherd is and who we are as sheep. And essentially what will happen is the gospel will recalibrate our understanding to his. I want to provide a definition for you of the gospel before we dive into the passage. The gospel is often thought of by Christians as the four books that describe the accounts of Jesus' ministry. Others would define the gospel as the good news that is coming out of Jesus' death and resurrection. And while those certainly are attributes of the gospel, the definition I want to put up on the screen of the gospel is much broader than that. The gospel is the story of God's plan to create a universe that delights to bring him glory. It's a story that includes our failure to fulfill that plan. It's a story that reveals God's plan to reconcile the broken creation through Christ and it is a story of the eternal reality that will result when he sets up his eternal kingdom here on earth. So beloved, when we discuss and talk about the gospel, it is all of this. It is Genesis to Revelation so that when we arrive at the cross and the resurrection, we understand the role that it plays. When we arrive at the shepherd and his sheep, we understand the purpose of that through redemptive history. We understand the place that we fit into with all of Genesis to Revelation. Let's look at this shepherd and walk away with a biblical understanding of who he is and who we are as sheep. Number one, refresh as the true shepherd displays. Refresh as the true shepherd displays. So the scene, once again, is the apostles come back from their mission. Jesus, as their commander, had instructed them to go two by two into the villages, into the countrysides, proclaim the message that Jesus had been proclaiming, and they were given authority to be able to cast out demons and provide miracles. And so the disciples have been away for some time. The public ministry of Jesus has been initiated, and they are excited to give their account. The image that I would give you is the, the mom who comes back from being out of town. And what happens is the kids attack her. And they want to share with their excitement all the good that had taken place, all the bad that their dad had done, <laughs> all of the sugar that they had consumed, all of the things that are important to mommy that had been forgotten, and the dad's over in the fetal position in the corner. And what she sees is all of these kids and the boiling pot of water that's overflowing. And she hears the phone ring and she's like, okay, we have got to triage this thing. And look at what it says in verse 31. It says that he noticed that many were coming and going and they had no leisure to eat. Friends, before we get into the solution for busyness, I want to just unpack busyness biblically really quickly. There are going to be a lot of lists. In fact, I had people come up to me after the first service and say, Pastor, it was good, but it was a lot. So I'm just warning you, write them down and hopefully this will be a reference manual for you. Let's evaluate the busyness of our life. Number one, busyness of our lives should be that which brings glory to Christ. Busyness in our lives should be that which brings glory to Christ. We, we live in an era and in a culture where busyness is a badge of honor. 
And what'd you do on your day off? Well, I rested. I mowed the lawn. I constructed a high-rise building downtown. I solved world hunger. It's a badge of honor. But let's make sure if we are busy in our lives, and if we are very busy in our lives, that all of our busyness is activities that bring glory to Christ. Number two. We are too busy when something God commanded or designed is not possible or able to be prioritized. We are too busy in our lives when something that God has commanded or he has designed is not possible or able to be prioritized. Here what we see is something that God has designed human beings to need, food. And when you are so busy that it is impossible for you to eat or prioritize nutrition, then you are too busy. Number three, and this is where we'll begin to get into the solution. Self, there should be self-assessment and built-in periods of Christ-displayed rest in your life. There should be times of self-assessment and built-in Christ-displayed refreshment in your lives. There's verses that show that Christ modeled this, but we'll unpack this here in just a moment. Verse 31, Jesus assesses this, and his approach to triage is, verse 31, an emphatic in the original language. Come away. Come away. Like, just stop everything. Stop your reporting. Stop the ministry of people coming in and coming out. Stop it. Have any of you seen the, the Bob Newhart video on YouTube? Lady comes in. She's afraid of being buried alive in a box. And he's like, I'm going to give you two words. This will solve everything. Stop it! But there is a point in which that is simple and true. Jesus says, stop it. Come away by yourselves to a desolate place. If we're going to translate that to the contemporary context, leave your phones at home. Come to a place where there's no Wi-Fi. Come to a desolate place where there's no distractions and rest. The word rest is an interesting one. Literally in classical Greek, it meant to become physically refreshed after ceasing activity or work. That, that, that's important. It's not just ceasing work or activity. It's actually being refreshed. And in fact, there, there's a classical Greek man, or, uh, 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 Rest, brother, rest. Rest. <laughs> Refresh. There's a classical Greek something from ancient, so it's important. And it was this general who actually refreshed, same Greek word, refreshed his soldiers, and the writer says, as many as three times before the battle. It's not just that he stopped training. It's not just that he gave them an opportunity to sleep. He wanted to make sure that they were refreshed, equipped, and prepared for the battle. And that begins to get us into what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not just saying stop. He's saying stop and be refreshed. So how do we do that? Well, let me give you some practical biblical instruction. Number one, remember that the ultimate source of this kind of rest is Jesus. Would you write that down? The ultimate source of this kind of rest is Jesus. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, Jesus says, come to me and I will give you what? 
It's the same word. I will give you rest. I will give you refreshment. My wife models this. She will get to a place where usually I've stressed her out so much. And she'll say, I just need some, I need me some Jesus. And what that means is she's going to go up to her room, in, up to her chair, get out the Bible, get out her prayer cards, and she's going to spend time with Jesus. And every time, 100% of the time, she comes back a changed person, and usually convicting me. The ultimate source of this is Jesus. Lakes are important. Vacations at the ocean are important. But remember, if you want to get this true refreshment, Jesus is the source. Number two, there are times when spiritual Red Bull needs to be consumed. This is often what we do, isn't it? I mean, the whole purpose of Red Bull is to avoid rest. Five-hour energy, avoid rest, just keep on going. And sometimes we need spiritual Red Bull, and we've got to plow through. That's what Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 26, verse 45. Sleep and rest later on. Now listen, this is not one of those messages that's this beautiful formula that you just write down these four things, you walk out of here and you've got it solved. I was talking to somebody in between services. I can't tell you the perfect formula for percentage of rest versus work. I can't. We each need to work that out with wisdom through counsel, trial and error. But just know that it's not just rest all the time. There are times that you do need your spiritual Red Bull. Number three, we should and can contribute to the rest of others. Write down 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 13. Paul says that Titus experienced great joy. How? How did Titus experience great joy? Well, he was refreshed by the Corinthians. Paul writes to Philemon, you refreshed us. He was characterized as somebody who was a, a refresher. Let me ask you this. If people in your small group were to assess you, would you be assessed as a refresher or a drainer? How about you with the leadership of this church? Are you a refresher or you're a drainer? When you come on Sunday morning, are you coming to absorb and consume? Are you coming looking for an opportunity to refresh somebody else? Do you realize that if you came every Sunday looking for an opportunity to refresh somebody else, you would leave refreshed. I promise you. Number four, rest today. This kind of rest is a taste of eternity, Revelation 6.11 and Revelation 4.13. This is the rest that Jesus is calling his disciples to, but you know what I also love about this is look what he says at the end of verse 31. Rest forever. Is that what it says? I wish it said that. Because isn't the human temptation that when we actually carve out our day and we you know, play video games, we invest in the kids, because that is investing in my kids, playing video games with them, right? But isn't it true that when we do that, the human flesh wants to do that all the time? Jesus says here, no rest for a little while. This refreshment is intended to be finite. Beloved, I think one of the reasons why this statistic is true, I, I was reading a book, which by the way, can I give you three resources? Because I'm just, I'm, I am hitting the iceberg on this all important topic. In fact, one medical doctor said that he believes that the pandemic of lack of margin as Americans is worse than any other pandemic the world has ever experienced. 
We don't build margin into our lives. So if 100% of our lives is built up with activity, then what when God throws us a curveball? What when the Holy Spirit puts somebody, like a neighbor into your life who when you're mowing because you have no margin, you've got to finish by a certain time and you see out of the corner of your eye a neighbor that walks up and you know that they want to talk and you're like, no, I can't do it. It's because we don't have margin. So I'm just touching on the surface and convicting the heck out of myself But let me give you three resources. Number one is Reset by David Murray, M-U-R-R-A-Y. And then for ladies, it's specifically for women, Refresh by David and Shauna Murray, S-H-O-N-A. I think we have both of those in our library, First Come, First Serve. Another one that I listened to while I was mowing, I love doing that. And I don't get everything like I do when I actually read it, but man, I get a lot. And I have been greatly impacted by this. It's a medical doctor who's a Christian. It's the book called Margin. Richard uh, Swanson, uh, Swenson, Samsonite, Swenson. It's Swenson. Some of you got that. Richard Swenson. But but, but he said, this doctor said that 60% of those polled of Americans say that vacation never delivers the rest that they were expecting. I mean, the phrase that most people you use when they come back as Americans is, I need a vacation from my vacation. vacation. Our family is getting ready to drive down to Florida with some friends, and it's tradition. I think this is like, what, the, is this the seventh, sixth, seventh? It's, it's up there. And some of these vacations have been me coming back and saying that very same phrase. I need a vacation from a vacation. Many of those have been, as we get to the end of that week, I'm starting to dread and feel the the weight of going back to life. But this year is going to be different because I'm going to be intentional. Because on the drive down, I'm going to be looking at creation. I'm going to be looking at the clouds. I'm going to be looking at trees. I'm going to be looking for signs of my creator. I'm going to be remembering that I'll probably get on my wife's nerves and she'll get on mine Actually, probably I'll get on hers and not her on mine. The kids, there will be days of rain. But, but in those moments, I, I'm going to remind myself that those vacations were never intended to deliver satisfaction. Solomon writes about that. All of this is to be enjoyed as long as the Bible does not prohibit something, but it was never intended to deliver. A marriage relationship is never intended to satisfy Parents to children was never intended to satisfy. Bank accounts, job descriptions, career paths, never intended to satisfy. Enjoy them. Enjoy them. But for they were what they were intended to provide. The white sandy beach of Florida is going to bring enjoyment. The crashing of the waves. The suntan I hope that I get. All of that was intended to deliver enjoyment, but never satisfaction. So when it leaves me empty, when it leaves me wanting more, I'm going to be reminded true satisfaction is found in Christ. So friends, what Jesus is doing here is providing for us a true shepherd display of what rest looks like. There are times when rest is necessary, time when the battery needs to be recharged. Build in times in your life where there's margin, and where there's an opportunity to self-assess and find true biblical rest. Number two, empathize as the true shepherd defines. 
Empathize is the true shepherd defines. And, and listen, I understand empathy in our day is, has a stigma that is wrong. It's not biblical. I'll unpack this in just a moment. But let's understand the context. So the disciples get on the boat, verse 32 says, and that's important. I'll explain why in just a moment. But just put yourself in that historical context. They're on the boat. They've turned in their phones. There's no Wi-Fi on this cruise ship. And some of them are sleeping. Some of them are staring off into the hills. Some of them are laughing. Some of them are enjoying the, the sun and that spring day and the rhythm of the rocking of the boat. And they're finding refreshment. But it does say, as often happens in life, that the people recognized them because it was the boat. The article, the, is important. It doesn't say that they got in a boat. And remember, Peter is dictating, most likely, to mark these events. And so Peter is likely saying, this was the boat. This is the, this is the Peter boat. It was either Peter and John's or James, Peter and Andrew or James and John's. And so it probably had a certain sail. It probably had a certain look. And so the people from the shores are saying, wait a minute, that's the Jesus boat. And so what does it say? Verse 33. Now many of them were going and they recognized them and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when they got there on the shore, he saw a great crowd. Verse 44 says 5,000 family units. That's what it means when it says 5,000 men. Likely seven to 10,000 people are waiting for them on the shore. This is a crossroads, isn't it? Jesus had just told the disciples, you need to refresh, you need to rest. Jesus had just reminded himself, I need to refresh, I need to rest. He gets out on the crowd, or on the shore, and there's a massive crowd waiting for him. I think this is the epicenter of what Mark is trying to communicate. Verse 34 says, he saw them and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And before we get to the word compassion, that's where I get empathized. We'll get to that in just a moment. Would you look at the phrase, they were like sheep without a shepherd? And some of your translations might have a footnote or it might be in a different font or format designating that this is a citation of the Old Testament. And I believe it is. Write down Numbers 27, verse 17. I think Mark was drawing that original audience, which as we saw from the very opening lines of this gospel, were clearly familiar with the Jewish scripture, clearly familiar with Jewish culture and, and what was going on in Judaism in the first century. And, and this sheep without a shepherd analogy goes back to Numbers 27, which let's bring ourselves back in our spiritual DeLorean to Numbers and in Numbers, we see the Jews wandering in the wilderness after leaving where? Egypt. We have who was the leader of Israel at that time? Moses. Moses is an incredible shepherd. Think about what he had going against him. A family of seven, 70 arrived in Egypt 400 years before. And over 400 years, they had grown into over a million people. They were in slavery. They're groaning, and, and Exodus 2 says that their groans were heard by the Lord, and his solution was he raised up the shepherd named Moses, a, a man who felt inadequate. Isn't that amazing? 
A man who said, I'm not eloquent in speech. A man who had run away because of something he himself had done in Egypt. This was the man that God chose to shepherd his people Israel. And these millions of people left Egypt without any laws, without any guidelines. And so they're going out into this wilderness area, traveling without guidelines. And so Moses is the vehicle through which God delivers his people a law and a structure. When the people were hungry, he interceded, God gave them bread. When the people were thirsty, he interceded, he gave them drink. When people attacked the nation, he defended them. This is an amazing shepherd, but in Numbers chapter 20, something had happened in Moses' life that made the future in jeopardy. The people were trying to drink from water that was bitter in Meribah, And the Lord said, I want you to speak to the rock because water will come out of it. But what did Moses do? He struck the rock. And the Lord's punishment was, you will not enter the promised land. And as any good leader should do, he wasn't wallowing in self-pity. He was turning his attention to the sheep. And look what it says in verse 17 of Numbers chapter 27. Moses is asking the Lord, who shall go out before them and come in before them? Who shall lead them out and bring them in that the congregation of the Lord may not be a sheep that have no shepherd? This is the heart of a shepherd, isn't it? Okay, I know I blew it. I knew I failed in this point as a leader, but I want to protect the sheep. Now, the Lord had a solution, and he raised up a man that is the Hebrew term Yeshua. This is Joshua. Joshua performed some of the duties of Moses, but not exactly the same. Later on, God would raise up another warrior shepherd by the name of David, who would be called a man after God's own heart. And he did a lot that Moses did, and God communed with him directly, and yet he was not the true shepherd king. The kings that followed after David failed miserably, and so the prophets began to talk of a shepherd king of the future who would be the true servant, the true shepherd, would be greater than Moses, greater than David. And by the time you arrive at the first century, the concept of shepherd was really important to the Jews. The rabbis talked about the true shepherd. The Qumran community longed for the true shepherd, true shepherd, true shepherd, true shepherd. And so Mark says, Jesus looked out at the flock and saw them like sheep without a shepherd, revealing that it is Jesus who is the true shepherd. Let's break this down a little bit and better understand what a true shepherd does. I think we have these for the screen. If not, just listen. The function of a true shepherd is he knows where the sheep need to go and he leads them there. He knows where the sheep need to go and he leads them there. He's not back behind the army. He's out in front. He's evaluating the terrain. He's making sure provision is there. He's watching for potential dangers. He's out in front. He's leading them. He's directing them though, but where they need to go. So many sheep think They know where they need to go, but it's often not where they need to go. A shepherd knows, and he directs them. Thankfully, the shepherds of the church are simply under-shepherds. We as elders are not your ultimate shepherds. We are under-shepherds that follow the example of Christ. 
A true shepherd knows where the sheep need to go and leads them there. Number two, the shepherd provides protection. There are a lot of darts out there. There are a lot of pitfalls out there. There are a lot of things that sheep cannot see because they are sheep and shepherds need to protect. Number three, a shepherd functions in a way where they have the ultimate goal that the sheep are healthy. The function of a true shepherd is that the sheep will be healthy. So a shepherd leads where the sheep need to go. The shepherd protects the sheep. The shepherd has an ultimate goal that the sheep are healthy, but that moves us over to define what the sheep are. How is a sheep able to determine whether or not a sheep is healthy? Let me give you four ways. Number one, a sheep needs to be growing. A sheep needs to be growing. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. As a pastor, I I preach to a parade before me right now. I was told that by a mentor in the last 11 years have proven that true. I can guarantee you 100%, I'm not a prophet, but I can tell you this with absolute certainty. The faces that I'm looking at right now will not be the faces that are looking at me in 20 years, every one of you. That's just life. People move. People die. People come, people go. That's not cynicism. It's just saying a reality. And so that's why I don't look at you as my sheep. This is my church. I look at you as the people God has entrusted to me for such a time as this. And my goal is the same goal as the rest of the elders, and that is we want to invest in you while you are here, hopefully for a long time, so that you and we can look at your life and say from the moment you entered Ascend Church to the moment you left, you have grown to look more like Christ. Which brings us to number two. A healthy sheep is increasing in knowledge. Increasing in knowledge of the word, of God's character, of the gospel, of how that plays out in discipleship. That's why we preach the word verse by verse every Sunday. Even our topical messages will be biblical messages. That's why our small groups are pointing you either through books or by individual biblical book studies to the word of God. Why? Because it points you to God's character. And God's character is revealed perfectly in the person of Christ, John 5, 39. Healthy sheep are increasing in knowledge. Number three, healthy sheep repent and are restored from their sin. I was talking to Chad, one of our elders and staff members. He's the director of biblical counseling here. And we were talking about when the word of God is preached clearly and effectively, sin will be exposed. And for some of you, for sometimes with me, it's it's ugly sin. But sometimes it's more like respectable sins, like, ah, maybe I should be reading the Bible more. Maybe I should be at church because I'm worshiping and I value Christ, not because it's a duty. But beloved, let me just make sure I add that all sin, whether we would view it as respectable or gross and heinous, is equal at the foot of the cross. Amen? So as the word is preached, whether it's a respectable sin, whether it's a gross and heinous sin, it should convict you. And the expected response of a healthy sheep is, ah, I've blown it. Not my spouse's fault, not my past's fault, not environmental influences. No, I blew it and I repent. And then you're restored to health, and then you move on. Number four, another evidence of 
healthiness for the sheep is patterns of fruit of the Spirit. Not snapshots of fruit of the Spirit. So we take snapshots of people's lives. It can be really ugly at many times. But the patterns of our lives should give evidence of gospel fruitfulness, spirit fruitfulness. And beloved, if these are characterized in our lives, we can know that we are healthy sheep. So that's Jesus' objective. That's his function as a shepherd. And he saw that the sheep were not healthy. So verse 34 says he had compassion on them. The word compassion is really more aligned with empathy than sympathy. Let me make the distinction. Sympathy and empathy are very similar. They sound alike. There's a lot of crossover. But sympathy is ultimately feeling sorry for someone and wanting them to get help. Empathy, on the other hand, is entering into the person's situation, really seeking to understand them, seeking to experience what they're experiencing or what they're perceiving to experiencing them and entering in for the purpose of getting them true help. That's where the difference is between biblical empathy and 21st century American empathy. See, 21st century American empathy is, I want you to understand me, but unless you come to the same conclusions I come to, unless you agree with the solution I have come up with, then you're part of the problem. That's not biblical empathy. Biblical empathy is actually illustrated by Jesus here in verse 34. He has compassion for them, but he wants them to have true help. Let me give you three steps for you to be able to evaluate whether or not you have biblical empathy. Three steps. These are things that I've gotten from Scripture. I would encourage you to write these down. Number one, seek to understand. When you see someone that is going through a difficult time, when you see someone who is struggling, seek to understand. Let me give you some Scripture for that, all found in one chapter, Proverbs 18, verse 13, 15, and 17. This is one of the most important three verses in all of Scripture for problem-solving, for troubleshooting, for evaluating parenting. We investigate, we learn, we ask questions, we study. The first person to give the story sounds right until who is examined. The second person, this whole idea is all throughout Scripture that when we see a problem, we seek to understand. We don't just observe it from a distance and say, oh, that's too bad. I hope they get help. No, we ask questions. We investigate for the purpose of understanding where somebody actually is or, listen to this, where they think that they are. We seek to understand, which brings me to number two. We weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice. Romans 12, 15. We have a local church this week who has been weeping. Life Church. I know many of you, some of you have come from that church. Some of you saw it on social media. Their campus pastor just died from a heart attack. Beloved, our heart goes out to his family. Our heart goes out to their church. And I just want to take you through my own journey of that. I heard the information. A friend of my daughter's goes to their church and just texted my daughter. And my immediate response is, this can't be true. You know, what happened? Like, fix it, man, right? But true empathy is just stop. And just say, hey, if this is true, let me weep with those who read. 
Let me try to understand what they're going through. And just know that our elders are, are primed and ready to be able to come alongside that church and their leadership in any way that we can. See, true biblical empathy seeks to understand. True biblical em- uh, empathy weeps with those who weep and rejoices with those who rejoice, which shows that we truly understand. But then number three, we run this through the grid of Scripture and the gospel for true help. We run it through the grid of the gospel and Scripture for true help. This is where 21st century American empathy is different from biblical empathy. People want you to listen to their problems and understand them, but then agree with their conclusions and agree with their solutions. And sometimes that's allowable. As you look at society today, most of it is not. But see, when we run it through the grid of Scripture in the gospel, we can actually direct people to true help. And most people, in their desire for empathy, don't want true help. You say, well, Jeff, are you just giving like some social agenda that you have? No, I'm I'm drawing this from verse 34. Because when Jesus has compassion on them and has empathy and sees them as sheep without a shepherd, what does he do? He began to teach them many things. He understood their issue. He understood that their ultimate issue was not that they needed physical healing. He understood that their ultimate issue was they needed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you look at John 6, which is a parallel passage to this, and you look at verses 20 through 71, look at the content of Jesus' teaching. The content of Jesus' teaching is not seeker-friendly. It's not health, wealth, and prosperity. In fact, he gets to the end of his message, and it says many of his disciples no longer followed after him. Why? Because they were hard sayings. They confronted people. People wanted an empathetic shepherd that would deliver to them exactly what they thought that they needed. But Jesus says, no, my shepherding empathy actually knows what you need and I'm directing you to it. So, when we look at this passage and we see what Jesus unpacks, we see that empathize, empathizing as the true shepherd defines it, is what we sheep should be doing. Number three, strategize as the true shepherd directs. So now we're at the doorstep of the miracle, and and there's just, there's logic that we can see here. We can understand this from a human standpoint. Verse 35, it grew late. It's about four o'clock. Sunset at this time in Israel was about six o'clock, and his disciples came and said to him, this is a desolate place. Listen, what this does not mean is that they're out in the middle of nowhere. But what it means is, in order for people to get fed by logical steps and strategies, they're going to have to do some work. There's surrounding villages, and there's countryside where farmers can give them bread, but they're going to have to go make an effort. This is going to take a while. So their solution is a reasonable solution, horizontally speaking, verse 36, send them away. It's a temporary verb. Essentially what the disciples are saying, hey, we've had enough for today. They've had enough for today. Send them away. We can reconvene tomorrow. It's a reasonable strategy from so many vantage points. But what's interesting is that Jesus says something that sounds a little sharp, doesn't he? Look at verse 37. He says, you feed them. You get them something to eat. Listen, Jesus is a compassionate shepherd, and I love the chosen because it shows this side of him. 
But there's also a sharp side to him as well. And he turns to the disciples. John 6 tells us he's doing this to test them because he himself knew what he was going to do. And he says, you feed them. So look at how the disciples respond. They're still stuck in the horizontal. This is the point Jesus is making and the point Mark is giving for the details that he provides. The disciples respond with a horizontal reality that actually translates to us in the modern context. In Kansas, the, 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 the minimum wage is $7.25. The average loaf of bread is $2.50. So a denarii is one day of minimum wage. That's essentially what it is. So take 725 times 8 times 200, divide it by $2.50, and that means a loaf of bread could feed 4,640 household units. Isn't that pretty cool? How many household units are found in verse 44? About 5,000. So the disciples are using logic. They're using good numbers. They, they have an understanding of what the economy is of their day. They're coming up with a reasonable strategy, but Jesus is moving them past that. Let me just pause and say, Jesus is not against strategies. Would you write that down? He is not against strategies. He's not even against world-informed strategies. That's a tough thing for me to say. It's a tough thing for me to process. I got my undergrad degree in business. I got my master's in business. And in the process, I found it fascinating to study business leaders. And they could take these multi-million dollars and sometimes multi-billion dollar corporations and, and anticipate problems that are coming down the pipe and be able to pivot and make their company successful for the future, a la Walmart, a la not Kmart. And I find it fascinating to study these leaders and study the principles that I can glean from that. And guess what? It's okay to use those principles in the church. But we must not miss the point that Jesus is making. I think Christians can sometimes struggle with this. We have had people leave our church, and as I have interviewed them and said, why did you leave our church? There was one season where a couple families left because we removed chairs from the auditorium. And I explained to them the reason why we moved chairs from the auditorium is visitors were telling us, hey, we walked into this auditorium that seats 500 people and there were only 150 people there. And so our immediate response is something's wrong with this church. Is there leprosy or something? And so we evaluated that as shepherds and we said, okay, is there any distraction we can remove from guests to be able to allow them to come in and focus on what we're here for, which is worship and study together. And so we removed chairs, but their comment was, you're using worldly wisdom and care more about the numbers. Now, that wasn't our heart, but that was their perception. So again, this is something that we struggle with, and Jesus is not against strategies. He's actually giving us three filters to run our strategies through to ensure we're following the example of the shepherd. Let me give them to you. Number one. Focus on God's glory. Would you start there with your strategies? Every strategy you have in the home, in business, in your neighborhood, for your calendar, for ministry should have as its primary focus God's glory. Look at verse 41. Taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Now, I believe what he's doing here, and commentators agree, 
that he's giving a blessing that was traditional in Israel of this day that we actually see in the chosen that goes like this. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And I think that Jesus prayed this out loud and the 5,000 household units that could hear him responded in unison, amen. What he's doing is before he even gets to the details of the miracle, before he even gets to what he's about to do, he's bringing everyone's attention vertically. Make sure that's the primary beginning point of your strategies. Number two, focus on God's mission. Focus on God's mission I think both Jesus and Mark provide us vocabulary that points us to this. Look at what it says in verse 40. They sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. The designation of hundreds and fifties is very similar to Deuteronomy chapter, ah, I forgot that one, Exodus chapter 18, <laughs> when Jethro encouraged Moses to take all that he was doing and actually divide it amongst the judges and the elders. The Qumran community believed that Israel, true Israel, would be gathered in 50s and 100s in the end times. I think what Jesus was doing for his disciples and his contemporary audience was reminding them that there is a future plan, there is a future mission, and he also includes that by the vocabulary in verse 40. They sat down at table is what it literally says in the Greek. They reclined at table. And if you study the Gospels, you see that this is vocabulary that denotes a banquet. Now what it says here is that they sat down on the grass in a desolate place. There's no tables anywhere. There's no servants that are coming through. There's no chef that gets applauded. These are people out in a desolate place sitting on grass, but Jesus and Mark are using banquet metaphors. Why? Write down Luke chapter 13 and verse 29. This is something that Jesus taught on repeatedly that the apostles would not get until they had the Holy Spirit. And that is that many will come from the east, Gentiles, and from the west, Jews, and recline at table at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I think what Jesus and Mark are doing with this particular vocabulary is reminding both the people at this event as well as readers for every generation to focus on God's mission. Make sure your strategies are focusing on God's glory, focusing on God's mission, and then number three, focusing on God's resources. And I find that in verse 41. After he said a blessing, he broke the loaves. It's the same verb that we'll see in Luke twenty-two nineteen, 19, where he breaks the bread and institutes the Lord's table. The Lord's table is intended to point everybody who observes that to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the resource that is found in his completed work. So, beloved, Jesus is not against strategies. He is just reminding us that the ultimate Christ-honoring strategy has him in the center. Let me ask the team to put a quote up on the screen of Elizabeth Elliot. She says this, if the only thing that you have to offer is a broken heart, then offer a broken heart. So in a time of grief, the recognition that this is material for sacrifice has been very great, a very great strength for me, and anybody who knows Elizabeth Elliot's story knows she had sacrifice and suffering. 
realizing that nothing I have, nothing I am, will be refused on the part of Christ. I simply give it to him as the little boy gave Jesus five loaves and two fishes. We we see those details in John 6. With the same feeling of the disciples when they said, what good of that is there for such a crowd? And naturally, in almost anything I offer to Christ, my reaction would be, what good is that? The point is, the use he makes of it is his ultimate blessing. Friend, whatever you came in this morning with, broken heart, weighed down by your sin, whatever you bring to the discipleship conversation, maybe you only know the gospel very simply. Whatever it is that you have, bring it to the table because the Savior will make much of it. And that is his strategy. When we focus on God's glory and God's mission and God's resources, he will accomplish his task. Number four, align as the true shepherd demonstrates. So these final summary verses are not throwaway verses. It says they all ate and were satisfied. Now, in John 6, it says that the people realized what had happened, but here it doesn't. What Mark wants us to see is that the people weren't just tidied over. This just wasn't a protein bar. This was, I had everything that I wanted to eat and more. Now, the crowd isn't in tune with what Jesus had done, but the disciples were. That's why I think there were 12 baskets full of broken fishes, (laughs) pieces, and fish, not feces. I'm running on fumes, kids. (laughs) Verse 44, and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. What is this all trying to say? Three points as we close. Number one. Spiritual success does not come from human efforts or resources, but through trust and dependence on the one who brings forth bread from the earth. I love that. That's what true spiritual success is. Number two, two. true satisfaction is not found in the habel. Remember when we studied Ecclesiastes, this was the Hebrew term that Solomon used to describe all of the joys and the offerings of this world. It's habel, it's empty, it's the smoke that lingers after birthday candles are blown out. It's there, it's substance, it does last, there's something to it, but it is never intended to satisfy. Number three, true satisfaction is found in resting completely in the completed work of Christ, and sometimes this requires us intentionally to recharge our batteries. 